It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast, a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll start with a review of our big win on Sunday over Fiorentina, In part 2, we'll check how our competitors did on match day 18. And in part 3, we'll preview our Supercoppa Italiana match against Juventus on Wednesday. So let's start with the match against Fiorentina. Here's how it went. Sharp blow on the whistle from referee Daniele Kifi from Padova. And the first of the Sunday fixtures in this 18th round of Serie A underway at the... uh, Diego Armando Maradona Stadium in Naples. Seventh start of the league campaign for him now. This is uh, Irving Lozano rolling that one in. And Insigne guides it home. And Napoli have the early lead inside the opening five minutes of the game. Beautifully placed. Napoli won Fiorentina nil. Insigne's toe reclaims possession. And now Zielinski is getting up to full speed. And Napoli are looking really threatening. It's Petania. It's in behind, and it's a second goal, and it's scored by Diego Demma. Venuti losing out to Insigne. He's away from Amrabat. Chased by Milinkovic. He takes some catching Insigne when he's playing like this. And it's a lovely ball into Lozano, and it's an absolutely brilliant goal from Napoli, created by their captain, Lorenzo Insigne, with some outstanding play and a superb run from Lozano to get on the end of it. 3-0 Napoli, and that's a five-star goal. Koulibaly, a little flick there is a lovely one from uh, Zielinski now collecting possession away from the first defender, and it's into the back of the net, and it's number four. Almost on the stroke of half-time. Here we see no Fiorentina play around him. Well, there goes the half-time whistle, and it's uh, a welcome sound for the players of Fiorentina, who are on the end of a first-half thrashing. Well, here we go, then. It's Napoli who get things up and running at the start of the second half. And goes for the curler. 
we've seen that so many times in the past. Beaten away by Drangovsky this time, and Bakayoko's challenge, that will be a penalty conceded by Castrovili. What a daft place to concede a penalty kick. It's Insigne now for Napoli. And it's five. Just. And Napoli on the attack once more. Threatening a sixth and finding a sixth through Matteo Napolitano. The main man for Fiorentina up top, but I think he's responded really well. And there goes the final whistle, blown by Daniele Kifi. And uh, a sobering 6-0 thrashing for Cesare Prandelli's side. But As you heard, Napoli completely dominated Fiorentina winning 6-0 on goals from Lorenzo Insigne, who scored a brace, as well as Diego Demme, Chucky Lozano, Piotr Zielinski, and Matteo Politano. This was the sixth time this season that we've scored four or more goals in a single match, and the second time this season that we've won by a scoreline of 6-0. The other one, of course, was against Genoa. This was also a rare Napoli performance where we actually took our chances. We only had 10 shot attempts, but we scored with six of them. Coincidentally, Fiorentina also had 10 shot attempts, but they scored none. Meanwhile, we recorded our first clean sheet in a month and a half. Our last clean sheet was a 4-0 win over Crotone on December 6th. Heading into this match, we had conceded at least one goal in nine consecutive matches in all competitions. Our back line, led by another spectacular performance by Kaladu Koulibaly, successfully snuffed out Fiorentina's attack. That attack included Jose Callejon, who made an emotional return to Napoli for the first time. Before the match, he told the zone that Napoli will always be his home. Fiorentina had a good spell of play from about the 23rd minute to the 32nd minute, where they actually looked like they might equalize. Cristiano Biraghi had a shot deflect off of Demme and hit the bar. Shortly after that, Demme conceded possession in our own box, which led to a chance for Frank Ribéry, but David Ospina made an excellent save to protect the lead. Almost immediately after that save, Napoli scored twice in three minutes, and the game was pretty much over. I thought Cesare Prandelli got this one completely wrong, but the way Napoli played, I don't think we would have lost this match even if Prandelli got it right. Both Chucky Lozano and Andrea Pitania picked up knocks in this match. Lozano appeared to be fine and he carried on playing. He ended up playing about 60 minutes. He was replaced by Matteo Politano who scored a beautiful goal after a brilliant solo effort. Pitania took a knock to the calf shortly after the start of the second half, but he still managed to play for about 25 minutes before being removed. Judging from the reports after the match, his injury does not appear to be serious. Dries Mertens made his long-anticipated return, but he seemed to be moving rather gingerly. Of course, after being off for so long, he had some rust to shake off. And 18-year-old Primavera player Antonio Chofi made his first team debut after sitting on the bench for four matches. He played 11 minutes, and he actually looked very comfortable. We'll talk about all of that in this review, and we'll revisit our three keys to the match. But first, let's take a look at the starting lineups. Fiorentina had three changes compared to our predicted 11. Cesare Prandelli lined up in the 3-4-2-1 formation again with Bartolomei Drogovski in goal. German Petzella returned from injury to start at center back. We had Lucas Martinez Quarta playing, but he wasn't even in the squad. Igor played on the left and Nikola Milankovic played on the right. Sofian Amrabat and Gaetano Castrovilli played in the center of the midfield, Cristiano Biraghi played on the left wing, and Lorenzo Venuti started over Martin Cassides on the right wing. 
Frank Ribery also returned from injury to start over Valentin Isarek. He played beside Jose Callejon and behind Dusan Valovic in the triangle up top. Napoli had four changes compared to our starting 11. Gennaro Gattuso lined up in the 4-2-3-1 once again with David Ospina back in goal. Kostas Manolas returned from injury to start over Nikola Maksimovic at centre-back. I was surprised to see how quickly Manolas returned. Clearly his injury was not as bad as we thought, which is why we had Maksimovic starting. Kalidou Koulibaly completed the centre-back pairing. As expected, with Giovanni Di Lorenzo suspended, Mario Rui played at left-back and Elsie Kusai played at right-back. Fabian Ruiz tested positive for COVID after we published our preview, so Timoy Bakayoko and Diego Deme played in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Chucky Lozano got his fifth start in 15 days. He played on the right wing. We had Matteo Politano starting on the right wing. Piotr Zielinski played in the number 10 spot and Andrea Petania started at striker over Dries Mertens. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's take a look at our three keys to the match. The first key to the match was that we needed to take advantage of our fresh legs. I'm going to say that we achieved this one. Fiorentina didn't have as many tired legs as I was expecting them to have. German Petzella and Frank Ribéry both returned from injury, so they were both well-rested. But some of Fiorentina's most important players were playing on short rest. Gaetano Castrovilli, Sofian Amrabat, Igor, and Nikola Milenkovic all played in the Coppa Italia, and they all struggled to keep pace with our attack. Three of them were ultimately replaced at the end of the match when this game was pretty much lost. I'm surprised Prandelli left them out as long as he did, if I'm being honest. Meanwhile, we had fewer rested players in our squad than I was expecting. I wasn't expecting to see Lozano start given how much he's been playing lately. Also, Diego Deme was forced to start with Fabian testing positive for COVID. I was a little surprised Gattuso didn't replace Fabian with Stanislav Lobotka, but Lobotka also played against Empoli. Petania also started and he too has clocked a lot of minutes lately. That being said, Petania did a great job of wearing down an already tired Fiorentina backline with his physical play, especially Milenkovic. Fiorentina's passing lacked sharpness, which suggests again that they were both physically and mentally fatigued, and it seemed Fiorentina's midfield just could not keep up with ours. That's actually a good segue into our second key to the match. The way this match went, our first two keys to the match were inextricably linked. The second key to the match was that we needed to play quickly. Now, this was based on the assumption that since Fiorentina were playing on short rest and don't have the same depth that we do, that they would sit back and defend. So we needed to play quick on and off the ball to break down that defense. Much to my surprise, Prandelli played a very attack-minded squad. Now, I do give Prandelli credit for going after it, but given the circumstances and given his opponent, I thought he got his tactics completely wrong. The positive play inevitably meant that there would be more space on the field. As we've seen this season, Napoli have really struggled to break down defensive teams, but opponents who play more open and give Napoli space are susceptible to conceding a lot of goals, and that's exactly what happened here. Napoli typically concede goals on the counterattack, not score them. Four of the six goals we scored in this game were on the counterattack, and in that sense, we did play quickly. Early in the match, it looked like Fiorentina were going to press high, and they were having success with it. There was one play very early where Amrabat pressured Koulibaly to play the ball back to Ospina. Amrabat kept pressing, and Ospina was forced to clear the ball out. But given the point that we just made about Fiorentina being tired, there was no way they would be able to keep up that tempo for the entire match. They barely did it for the first 10 minutes of the match before dropping back and letting Napoli come at them. 
The problem with Fiorentina's defending, at least in my opinion, was they didn't play compact enough. I'm not suggesting that the back line should have played higher because that would have exposed Fiorentina to the long ball and to the pace of Lozano. Instead, what I think they should have done was give Napoli their own half of the pitch and play compact in their half. Fiorentina played too far apart, which gave us the space we needed to pass the ball, and the combination of that space and some quick passes caused Fiorentina a lot of problems. We saw that specifically on the Zielinski goal, we completed 12 passes in the build-up without a Fiorentina player touching the ball, and we finished the play with 4 quick passes. Koulibaly started with a quick outlet to Mario Rui on the wing. Last episode we talked about how one of the benefits of having Koulibaly in the lineup is his ability to start the attack with his passing, which is exactly what he did here. Mario Rui flicked the ball on for Diego Deme, who returned the ball to Rui with a cheeky backheel pass. Rui then picked out Zielinski with his first touch, and the pole did the rest. First, he broke Castrovilli's ankles by stepping over the ball and cutting back into his right. Then he placed his shot off the post and in. That's also something we've talked about on this pod. Earlier in the season, Zielinski was just putting his head down and blasting his shots off target. We wanted to see him take a little bit off of the shot to improve his accuracy, and that's what he did. The shot wasn't particularly hard, but it was perfectly placed to beat Drogovski. The other thing I was a little surprised to see from Prandelli was that he replaced Ribéry with Christian Kwame at the break. Ribéry was the driving force for everything Fiorentina did in the attack in the first half, so removing him definitely affected Fiorentina's attack. However, Ribéry did just return from an injury, so I'll give Prandelli the benefit of the doubt. At 4-0, he probably figured Fiorentina wasn't coming back, so there's no point risking another injury. The final key to the match was that we needed to strike early. We scored in the 5th minute of the match, so we definitely achieved this one. More importantly, two players who have been heavily criticized of late linked up on this goal. It started with Insignia playing the ball out wide to Lozano on the right wing. We seemed to be attacking the right wing quite a bit in the first half, and I suspect that was Gattuso's plan, knowing that we'd have a mismatch with Lozano's pace against whoever lined up in the 3-man back line. Lozano squared for Petania in the box. Petania's first touch was heavy, but he recovered well, laying the ball off for Insigne. Insigne has been heavily criticized lately for failing to hit the target, including by yours truly. In fairness, my qualm was less about his shooting and more about the way he's reacted to his misses. On this play, he casually tucked his shot inside the far post. That was huge for his confidence. I wonder if he would have played so well in this match had he missed that shot, but I guess we'll never know. Fiorentina's defending on the play was quite poor. They had six players at the top of the six-yard box, most of them defending no one. Amrabat was tracking back and must have seen Insigne open. He appeared to stop running when Patania's first touch was heavy and then wasn't able to react quickly enough when Patania recovered. Insigne ended up being the man of the match. His most impressive play in this match was his assist on the Lozano goal, which was far more than just a pass. First, Insigne won possession from Venuti at midfield. Then he took on Amrabat and Milankovic 1v2. He nutmegged Milankovic and went out to the wing before turning back inwards toward the center of the pitch. Then Insigne played a perfect through ball between Milankovic, Petzela, and Igor to pick out Lozano's run at the back post. Lozano honored his predecessor, Jose Callejon, with a run that the Spaniard patented during his time at Napoli. Lozano put his body on the line to beat Dragovski with a sliding effort before colliding with the big keeper. That was his 8th goal of the season, which at the time tied him with Insignia for the most on the team. That was also Lozano's 10th in all competitions, which is the most on the team. 
The commentators accurately described Insigne's run as something we used to see Maradona do often in this very stadium, which of course is now named after the Argentine legend. Insigne scored a second from the penalty spot in the second half. The penalty came immediately after Drogovski made a nice save on Insigne's curling effort. Bakayoko picked up the ball at the top of the box and he was heading towards the corner flag when Castrovilli tackled him late. Castrovilli had a pretty rough outing. This foul was another indication of that fatigue we already talked about. For the second time in a row, Insigne used Jorginho's stutter step to take the shot. I find it kind of funny though that both times Insigne used that technique, he shot in the same direction the keeper dove, which tells you that he's not really doing it right. The whole point of the delay is to catch the keeper leaning one way or the other so you can shoot in the opposite direction. At the end of the day though, all that matters is that he scores and he did that even if just barely. Insigne now leads the team with 9 goals in Serie A this season. Andrea Petania also assisted on the second goal. This was another goal scored in transition where Napoli ran straight down the middle of the pitch. Zielinski played the ball to Petania on the left side of the box and the striker finally had a chance facing the goal which is probably why everyone and their mothers thought he was going to shoot. No one saw the cutback coming. Full credit to Diego Demme for continuing his run. That's exactly why you continue the run and even then he still needed to be fully stretched to get a touch on the ball. Demet fully deserved this goal for how hard he works and for how well he's played lately and you can see from his reaction how much that goal meant to him. So we achieved all three keys to the match and we got a resounding win. The last thing I want to talk about is our formation and this is related to a comment I received from Anna on Facebook. Thank you for that Anna. The comment was about the criticism Gattuso has received from the Italian media for persisting with the 4-2-3-1 formation and how Fabian does not really fit into it. I actually know a lot of people who share the view that without Osman in the lineup we should go back to the 4-3-3. Now you typically only see those complaints after disappointing performances. I didn't see anyone on Sunday saying that we should go back to the 4-3-3 after we won 6-0. One thing I should clarify is that the 4-2-3-1 is the formation we attack in. When we don't have the ball our wingers drop and the front two take each side so we defend in a 4-4-2. Last season we attacked in the 4-3-3 and again in defense our wingers dropped and we defended in a 4-5-1. Now those defensive formations are slightly different. Obviously the 4-5-1 has an extra midfielder so that clogs up the midfield a little bit more. But ultimately that changes a choice that Gattuso made. He wants to defend a bit higher and press a bit more. If he wanted to play Catanaccio like we did last season we would simply have the number 10 usually Protoslinski drop deeper to play the 4-5-1 and everyone would defend in our own half. That approach made sense last year particularly after Gattuso took over a club that was in complete shambles but a lot of the people I know that want us to go to the 4-3-3 also want us to be aggressive in the attack so really they're not asking for us to go back to the defensive 4-3-3 that we played last season rather they want us to play an attacking 4-3-3. Now, two reasons are typically cited for why we should use the 4-3-3. The first is that Gattuso made that change because it suited Osimhen better, and with Osimhen out, there's no point continuing with it. The idea behind the 4-2-3-1 was that Osimhen has so much pace that we can play him the long ball, but then when he gets the ball, he needs someone behind him to lay the ball off too, and that person was supposed to be Dries Mertens. When Osimhen got hurt and Mertens moved up to striker, I actually do think we should have gone back to the 4-3-3 because Mertens isn't a target man that you can launch the ball up to and let him run onto it. 
With Mertens as a striker, we're better off building out from the back, so it makes sense to have another midfielder helping with the build-up. But when Mertens also got hurt and we had to play Patania at striker, the 4-2-3-1 made the most sense again. Patania obviously doesn't have anywhere near the pace that Osman does and he too cannot run onto long balls. But as we know, his biggest asset is his hold-up play and big strikers that hold up the play need a player behind them to lay the ball off to. The other reason people criticize the 4-2-3-1 is because Fabian Ruiz does not fit in it. I agree, Fabian does not fit well in the system. He's an offensive-minded player who's being asked to play in a deeper role. I've mentioned a few times on this podcast that I think he would do well in the 10 spot because like Zielinski, he's not great in the defensive phase and at the 10, he'd have less of a defensive responsibility. Also, Fabian does have a good left foot on him and he's particularly dangerous from the top of the box. We saw that last season against Inter in the Coppa Italia and he reminded us of it when he smashed his shot into the upright against Empoli. In the 4-2-3-1, Gattuso had to pick one of Fabian or Zielinski to play in the 10 spot and he chose Zielinski. Zielinski has done so well in that role that we had to keep him there, which means Fabian either plays in a role that he's not suited for or he has to sit on the bench. This was a concern I raised with this formation heading into this season, that with essentially a two-man midfield and five options, a lot of those guys would lose playing time. We've had to choose between one of Bakayoko, Deme, and Lobotka for one half of the double pivot, and one of Fabian and Zielinski for the other half. The only reason Fabian and Zielinski have both played so much is because the Osman injury pushed Mertens forward, which then freed up the 10 spot. I think with the schedule as busy as it is, Everyone will still get their playing time even after Osman returns, but my expectation is now that Fabian will be sold in the summer. So that will do for part one. In part two, we'll check in on the top of the table. we'll take a look at how our main competitors did this round. Heading into the round, we were sitting in 6th place, tied with Atalanta on 31 points, but with a weaker goal differential. Milan remained at the top of the table on 40 points, 3 ahead of Inter. Roma were in 3rd on 34 points, 1 point clear of Juventus. Sassuolo entered the round in 7th place with 29 points, 1 ahead of Lazio and 2 ahead of Hellas Verona. And finally, Benevento rounded out the top 10 on 21 points. There were two big derbies this weekend, 
The first was the Derby della Capitale, which was played on Friday. This was the first time ever that the Rome Derby was played on a Friday. Even though there were no fans, this match started out with the intensity you would expect from a Derby. It was very open early on, but Lazio quickly took over, and by the end of it, they had completely dominated the match. Lazio won 3-0 on goals from Ciro Immobile and a brace from Luis Alberto. They have both been on fire lately. That was Immobile's 12th this season. He scored in all but four of the 16 Serie A games that he's played in this season. Luis Alberto has scored five goals in his last six matches. Once again, Lazio scored as a result of a mistake at the back by Roma. In the return fixture last season, Lazio equalized after Paulo Lopez punched the ball straight up at the near post and it landed on the goal line for Echerbi to tap in. In this match, Roger Ibanez hesitated in his own box before being closed down quickly by Lazzari on the wing. Lazzari's block fell for Immobile, who pounced the moment he saw the opportunity to beat Lopez. I didn't hear anyone warn Ibanez that Lazzari was coming. With empty stadiums, you would have heard the shout, but Ibanez should have known Lazzari was there. Why else would Immobile be switching the ball to that side? Now, Everyone got on Ibanez here, but there were multiple culprits on this goal. The play started with Pepe Reina playing a long ball intended for Immobile. Spinazzola was back defending and had Chris Smalling and Lorenzo Pellegrini open, but he had the ball to Immobile's feet. Then after Immobile played the switch, Roma's entire back line were ball watching. When Ibanez intercepted the pass, they just stopped running, which is why Immobile got to the ball first. They pointed out in the broadcast that these two teams had scored more goals in the first 15 minutes than any other club, and sure enough, this goal came in the 14th minute. Not to take anything away from Lazio's performance because they fully deserved the win, but Roma were a little unfortunate in this one as well. In the 18th minute, Pepe Reina appeared to clip Henrik Mkhitaryan on the heels in the box, but the penalty wasn't given. Personally, I had no issues with that decision. I think it would have been a soft call had the penalty been awarded. Then there was quite a bit of controversy on the second goal. Once again, Manuel Lazzari was involved, and once again, he beat Roger Ibanez. Lazzari went down in the box, and when the penalty wasn't given, he popped back up to his feet, laid the ball off to Luis Alberto, who had acres of space with not a Roma player in sight, and Alberto slotted his shot into the side netting at the far post. The reason this goal was controversial was because the ball appeared to hit Lazzari on the arm when he went to ground. Orzato discussed the play with the VAR, but never visited the monitor, and the goal was confirmed. While everyone was focused on the possible handball, neither the referees nor the commentators seemed to notice that Felipe Caicedo was in an offside position. Caicedo had to move out of the way of the shot, which means he interfered with the play, which means this goal should not have counted. Finally, the way Lazio were picking up yellow cards in the first half, I thought there was a decent chance that Lazio might get a second yellow, but credit to Lazio and to Simone Inzaghi for avoiding that second yellow. I'll get to Inzaghi in just a minute. At the end of the day though, even if Roma were given the penalty, and even if the second goal was disallowed, I still think Lazio would have won this match. Roma did not seem motivated to win this match. You would think down 2-0 at the start of the second half that Roma would come out with a lot of energy, but instead Lazio just continued to dominate. Between the 57th and 63rd minutes, Lazio had four quality chances, but Paulo Lopez was up to the task. If there's one player you can't blame for this loss, it's Paulo Lopez, who's now had back-to-back strong performances against two good teams. Had it not been for Lopez, this game might have finished 4 or 5-0. Then Lazio scored the third goal in the 67th minute. This goal was the definition of a team goal. Lazio completed 22 consecutive passes without a Roma player touching the ball before Alberto scored his second. Once again, Alberto was given too much time on the ball with no pressure and players of his quality will punish you for that. 
Finally, every single Lazio player on the field, including Pepe Reina, played at least one pass in the build-up to that goal. Meanwhile, Roma created very little in attack. They didn't get their first shot on target until the 85th minute, and they should have scored, but Edin Dzeko was way too casual with the finish. He tried to tap his shot in at the near post, which gave Reina time to get across. At 3-0, he should have just taken all his frustration out on that ball and smashed it into the roof of the goal. But the biggest difference between Lazio and Roma in this match was the managers. You had two very different styles in Simone Inzaghi and Paolo Fonseca. Inzaghi's pacing up and down the sidelines, he's barking orders to his players and pointing where to run, where to play the ball. Fonseca, on the other hand, is pretty static, quiet, observant, which is fine, that's his style, but tactically, he was outcoached. Roma played a very high line in the first half and Immobile and Lazzari took advantage of it. Down 2-0 at the break, it would have been nice to see Fonseca make some dramatic changes. Maybe it wouldn't have worked, but at least it would have shown an attempt. Sure, he brought in Pedro at the half, but didn't make his second change until the 60th minute, and then made two more changes after going down by three when it was pretty much too late. Once again, Fonseca failed to defeat a top club. This season alone, he's lost to Atalanta, Napoli, and now Lazio, and he's tied Juventus, Milan, Sassuolo, and Inter. So that was the first derby. The other big derby on the weekend was the Derby d'Italia. Juventus played Inter on Sunday, but I say played in air quotes because only one team really showed up for this match. Inter won 2-0 on goals from Arturo Vidal and Nicolo Barella. Fireworks were set off to celebrate the occasion, but they must have collected every firework available in Italy. This display went on for so long that they started the match while the fireworks were still going. Juve were missing a number of key players for this match. Matthias De Ligt, Alexandro, and Juan Cuadrado were all positive for COVID, and Paulo Dybala was out with a knee injury. Nevertheless, their performance was really uninspiring. In the past, this was the type of game where Cristiano Ronaldo would single-handedly salvage a draw or even steal a win, but he was nowhere to be found. In his defense, though, there wasn't a single Juventus player who had a particularly strong match. Pirlo did what he could, bringing in Weston McKinney, Dejan Kulusevski, and Federico Bernardeschi off the bench, but that didn't change a whole lot. Juve didn't get a quality scoring opportunity until the 87th minute, but Samir Handanovic did really well to stop Federico Chiesa's shot. Like last season, we're left questioning the quality of Juventus's midfield, Pirlo started Rodrigo Bentancur and Adrian Rabiot in the center of the midfield, and they were completely bossed by Marcelo Brozovic, Arturo Vidal, and especially by Nicolo Barella. For me, Barella is the best midfielder in all of Serie A. He consistently delivers, and this match was no exception. He played the cross in Inter's first goal, but what was impressive was not just that he played the cross, but also how he did it. He had the ball on his stronger right foot, cut back to his weaker left foot, and still played a perfect in-swinging cross. Arturo Vidal, of all people, scored with a header. Before the match, Vidal was caught on camera kissing the Juventus badge while sharing an embrace with Giorgio Chiellini. Now, he did say after the match that he was just kissing his brother, he wasn't kissing the badge, but scoring that goal was probably the only way that he could make amends for that gesture. Barella scored the second goal himself after a ridiculous long ball from Inter's other young star in the making, Alessandro Bastoni. Barella ran onto the ball, took a touch, and smashed his shot into the roof of the goal. Inter probably should have won this match 
4 or 5 nil, but they squandered a number of chances. Inter missed 5 or 6 chances in the first half alone, so going into the break only up 1 nil, I couldn't help but think that they would be punished for it. Lautaro Martinez had the best chance of the lot. Wojtek Szczesny pushed Romelu Lukaku's shot back into Lautaro's path, but the Argentine could not hit the empty target. Lautaro had a few chances to extend Inter's lead on either side of the half, but it just wasn't his night, and he was probably the one disappointment of the night for Interisti. But on the whole, this was a really impressive win for Inter, even if Juventus were short-handed. That win put the pressure on Milan once again, and once again they responded. Milan played the final match of the round on Monday, and they got a 2-0 win over Cagliari on a brace by who else? Zlatan Ibrahimovic. This match perfectly summarized Milan's season so far. As has often been the case this season, Milan played the match without a number of key players. Teo Hernandez, Hakan Chalanoglu, Antti Rebic, and Radley Krunic all missed this match due to COVID, and Ismail Benacer and Matteo Gabbia are still hurt. Milan were awarded a penalty kick in the 5th minute after Zlatan Ibrahimovic stepped in front of Charlampos Likojanis. That was Milan's 12th penalty kick of the season. The last time Zlatan missed a penalty, he said he would allow Frank Kessie to take them from then on, but I guess he wanted to get back into scoring, so he took this one and he did score. Zlatan scored his second of the match early in the second half. Davide Calabria played a gorgeous, perfectly weighted long ball for Ibra to run onto before finishing past Alessio Cranio with his left foot. Ibra was initially called offside, but the replay showed that Likojanis just barely played him on, so the goal was given. Calabria had an excellent match, especially in attack. He had a long-range effort stopped by Cranio in the 25th minute, and then he struck the upright in the 37th minute. That's been another common theme with Milan this season. They lead the league with 8 shots off the post or crossbar. Milan gave Cagliari a chance to get back into this match after Alexis Salamakers came off the bench and within 8 minutes picked up 2 yellow cards, so he will miss Milan's next match, which is a big one against Atalanta. Alessio Romagnoli will also miss that match after he picked up his 5th yellow card in his last 7 matches. As always, Gigio Donnarumma made some big saves when needed. In the 63rd minute, he made himself big to stop Giovanni Simeone's point-blank effort after a lovely give-and-go with João Pedro, and in the 82nd minute, Donnarumma stopped Alberto Chetti's header that was destined for the top corner. Even though Milan were without a number of players, they did get a small boost from Suelijo Mete. He made his debut in this match after joining Milan from Torino earlier this month. Cagliari have now gone 11 straight matches without a win, and 7 of those results were losses, so Eusebio Di Francesco is very much at risk of becoming the latest manager to get the sack. Moving on, Sassuolo drew Parma 1-1 on goals from Juraj Kuczka and Filip Juricic. I don't know if this was one of Sassuolo's worst performances or one of Parma's best performances, it was probably a combination of both. Early on, it looked like Sassuolo were going to take care of business even without Domenico Berardi, Jeremy Boga, and Manuel Locatelli in the squad. In the 11th minute, Giorgos Kyriakopoulos smashed his shot off the bar, and a minute later, Chicho Caputo got through, but Luigi Seppe stopped his shot from a sharp angle. Parma settled down after that, and from then on, the match was pretty even. Juraj Kuczka opened the scoring, heading in Giuseppe Pezzella's cross, and he did it with a bloodied bandage on his head. In the opening minute of the match, Kuczka took a gruesome boot to the head from Vlad Kirikesh. Both sides had chances in the second half, and both keepers came up big. Seppe made a nice save on Gregor Defrel to protect Parma's lead, and Andrea Consigli made a nice save on Alberto Grassi to stay only one goal behind. 
Parma held on until the third minute of added time when Maxime Bussi fouled Gianmarco Ferrari in the box, Filip Juricic stepped up to convert the penalty and to salvage the draw. Sassuolo came very close to recording their fourth loss in their last six matches, but this definitely would have been the worst because the other three were against Milan, Atalanta, and Juventus. Finally, Atalanta drew Genoa 0-0, which was a result few pundits would have predicted given the form Atalanta have been in lately. Genoa played surprisingly well in the first half. They were playing aggressive and pressing high, and throughout the match they were throwing bodies in front of Atalanta's shots. Kevin Stroopman made his debut for Genoa and nearly set up the opening goal of the match, but Eldor Shomurodov's shot from the top of the box just narrowly missed the target. Shomurodov had another excellent chance in the 40th minute, but Pierluigi Golini made a quality save to keep the match level. Shomurodov had another excellent chance in the 40th minute, but Pierluigi Golini made a quality save to keep the match level. The second half was all Atalanta, but they just could not break through. They came close on a few occasions. Hans Hattabor smashed his shot off the outside of the post after a lovely flick on from Barajim City. In the 77th minute, Mattia Perin made a fine save after Robin Gosen's shot deflected off Eduardo Goldaniga and headed towards the near post. And Martin Darun had a shot late in the match, sailed just over the bar. So this one finished nil-nil. I was tempted to say that maybe Atalanta do need Papu Gomez after all, but as we Napoli fans know all too well, Sometimes you just have these types of matches where it seems like it just wasn't meant to be. So Milan and Inter continue to march forward at the top of the table with their wins. They remain 9 and 6 points clear of Napoli respectively. We jumped back up to 3rd in the table with our win and with Juve, Roma, Sassuolo and Atalanta all dropping points. Roma are in 4th place tied with us on 34 points but we have the advantage both with respect to head to head and goal differential. Juventus are now in 5th place on 33 points, and Atalanta are in 6th place on 32 points, but like us, they both have a game in hand, so Roma could quickly find themselves out of the top 4 after a pretty good run. Atalanta played their makeup game against Udinese on Wednesday, so we could see Atalanta jump up to 3rd place with a win. As I said before, the way the table is shaping up, I think our makeup game against Juventus is going to be huge. Lazio continue to creep up the table, they're now in 7th place, 1 point ahead of Sassuolo who continued to slide down the table, Verona have dropped down to 9th, and Sampdoria have now overtaken Benevento for 10th. So that will do for part 2, in part 3 we'll preview our Supercoppa match against Juventus. final part we'll preview our match on Wednesday against Juventus. This is the 33rd edition of the Supercoppa Italiana which first started in 1988. It's the first time the cup will be played in an empty stadium 
and it's the first time it will be played at Sassuolo's Mape Stadium in Reggio Emilia. In fact, it's the first time in three years that the cup will even be played in Italy. The last two editions were played in Saudi Arabia, but obviously that can't happen this year because of COVID. This is Juventus's 15th time playing in the Supercoppa. They've won it eight times. For Napoli, it's our fourth time playing in the cup. The previous three were played against Juventus as well, and we won two of those and we lost one. Our first win was in 1990, which we qualified for by winning the Scudetto in 89-90. We won that game 5-1 and somehow Diego Maradona didn't score. Andrea Silenzi and Careca both scored a brace and Massimo Cripa scored the other, while a 23-year-old Roberto Baggio scored the lone goal for Juventus. Of course, we haven't won a Scudetto since, so we qualified for the other two by winning the Coppa Italia. In 2012, we lost 4-2 in extra time. Edison Cavani and Goran Pandev scored in regulation for Napoli. Asamoah and Arturo Vidal scored in regulation for Juve. Christian Madro scored an own goal and Mirko Vucinic put the game away in extra time. We got our second win two years later. That was another crazy game with lots of goals from Argentinians. Carlos Tevez and Gonzalo Higuain scored in regulation. Then Tevez scored in extra time and Higuain tied it again with only two minutes left in extra time to force a penalty shootout. The shootout went to the ninth round before Kalidou Koulibaly scored the winning shot. The last meeting between these clubs went to a penalty shootout as well. That was the final of the Coppa Italia, which is why Napoli are playing in this game. These clubs are supposed to play on match day three, and we all know what happened there. So this will be the first meeting between them this season. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. With all of Juve's missing players and Pirlo's experimentation with formations, I was really struggling with Juve's starting 11, so I reached out to my good friend Daniel Lucci for some help. To the best of his knowledge, Juve will line up in a 3-5-2 with Wojtek Szczesny in goal. Juve's backline has been decimated by COVID and injuries. Matthias Delict, Juan Cuadrado, and Alexandro are all positive, and Mehdi Demirel picked up a foot injury in training. With all of those players out, Daniel expects a back three of Danilo, Leonardo Bonucci and Giorgio Chiellini. Federico Bernardeschi would play as the left wing back and Federico Chiesa as the right wing back. Artur, Rodrigo Bentancourt and Weston McKenney would play in the center of the three-man midfield with McKenney playing a more free role. Finally up top Cristiano Ronaldo would be paired with Dan Kulusevski with Alvaro Morata getting a rest. For Napoli, even though I personally don't value this cup, it is still a cup against our biggest rivals no less, so I think Gennaro Gattuso will start pretty close to our best 11. Gattuso will line up in the 4-2-3-1 with David Ospina likely to start in goal. We should see Kalidou Koulibaly and Kostas Manolas at center back because Nikola Maksimovic was a limited participant in training on Tuesday. I think we'll see Mario Ruiz start at left back to try to cope with the pace of Federico Chiesa on the right wing and Giovanni Di Lorenzo should start at right back since he did not play against Fiorentina. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Stanislav Lobotka will start in the double pivot with Timo Ibakayoko. I know everyone wants to see Diego Demis start, but with the intensity that he plays with, he rarely plays two games in a row, let alone three. Lorenzo Insigne should start on the left wing once again. I think Chucky Lozano will be given a rest given the number of minutes that he's played lately and the knock that he took on the knee against Fiorentina, so I have Matteo Politano starting on the right wing. 
I think we'll see Piotr Zielinski start in the 10 spot, but the big question mark is who will play at striker. I'm not exactly sure who will start at striker. Mertens didn't look 100% to me against Fiorentina, and Petania picked up a knock in that match as well. Petania did work in the gym on Monday, but he was a full participant in training on Tuesday, so I'm going to go with Petania to start. If he's not fit to play, then we may even see Chucky Lozano start at striker. So those are the starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. If you watch the Juve match against Inter, we basically need to do what Inter did. The first key to the match is we need to win the midfield battle. Juve's biggest weakness last season was their midfield. Personally, I think their biggest weakness is now their backline, especially with all the players missing. I'll get to that in our third key to the match. But as we talked about in part two, with the way Juve have played this season, it's starting to look like their midfield is a problem again as well. I'm not going to pretend that our midfield is the same as Inter's. Personally, I think Nicolo Barella is the best midfielder in all of Serie A right now. We also don't have Diego Demme in our starting lineup, which again, maybe I'm wrong about, but I still think he needs the rest. And I'm also concerned about the potential for McKenny to roam or movement in general, including from Ronaldo. We'll need to be very disciplined in our defending, we need to hold our structure, and we need our defenders and our midfielders to be in constant communication. We tend to get ourselves into trouble when our defenders get pulled out of position, especially our center backs, but for me, the key to stopping the Juventus attack is to keep the ball away from their strikers in the first place. That brings me to our second key to the match, which is that when Juventus do get the ball to their attacking players, we need to get bodies in front of the ball. Between Ronaldo, Kulusevski, and Keza, Juve's attackers have the quality to beat us from a distance. The best way to stop them is to close them down quickly. For this reason, I was even tempted to predict that we might line up in the 4-3-3 so we can defend like we did last season in the 4-5-1. However, like we talked about in part 1, even if we line up in the 4-2-3-1, we can still defend in the 4-5-1 by dropping Zielinski deeper when we don't have the ball. Playing against a 5-man midfield, our wingers will play an important role in the defensive end. Fortunately, Gattuso has already trained his men to do just that. We constantly see Insigne Lozano and Politano tracking back to support the midfield. Just getting back isn't enough though, we have to mark tight. As we saw against Empoli, even Serie B players can punish you when you give them space to shoot. We definitely don't want to invite Juventus, and especially Cristiano Ronaldo, to shoot on target. Of course, when you mark tight, you also have to be careful not to foul, especially in the box. I know Juve are right there with most teams in terms of penalties earned, and no one has as many as Milan, but they definitely have some masters at winning penalties. We've seen Ronaldo do it, we've seen Keza do it, fortunately Dybala is not in the squad because we know that he can do it as well, and we saw Kulusevski do it to us last season when he was with Parma. Our third key to the match is we need to exploit Juve's aging back line. Now, that is definitely an argument for starting Lozano instead of Politano because of his pace, and maybe that does happen, but I'm genuinely concerned about the risk of injuring Lozano by overplaying him. He left the Torino game with a knock and fortunately returned quickly, then he nearly injured his knee against Fiorentina, so we need to start resting him more. Politano is certainly capable of beating Juve's backline. He may not have the pace that Lozano does, very few players actually do, but he does have the ball skills. Likewise, we know what Insigne can do on the left wing. 
We'll see who plays that striker, but I think all of our options provide different ways to beat Juve. Pitania has the size and the strength to combat Bonucci and the hold-up play to find his teammates. Mertens has that chemistry with Insigne and is more lethal than Pitania from outside of the box. Pitania doesn't actually take that many shots from distance, and though I don't want him to, Lozano could play a striker as well, and again, his pace would pose all kinds of problems for that back line. The head official for this match is Paolo Valeri. He officiated the last Supercopa match between these two clubs in 2014. Valeri has officiated 23 Napoli matches since 2008. Napoli have a record of 14 wins, 5 draws, and 4 losses in those matches. However, we haven't won the last 3. Those 3 matches were a 2-0 loss to Inter last season, our 3-1 loss to Milan this season, and our 1-1 draw to Torino this season. Valeri's assistants are Daniele Bindoni and Stefano Del Giovanni. The fourth official is Maurizio Mariani, and Marco Di Bello is on the VAR, assisted by Giacomo Paganessi. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 1-1 draw in regulation and Napoli to win in penalty kicks. I'll give the Napoli goal to Lorenzo Insigne, and I'll give the Juve goal to Cristiano Ronaldo. My personal opinion is that this match is the least important game of the season regardless of who's involved. I know we have a rivalry with Juventus and we always want to beat them no matter what, but we should not try to win this match at all costs. It's a one game tournament that was invented basically to make money. That's why it's usually played in places like China and Saudi Arabia because it's essentially a cash grab. The match has little meaning. By that I mean that winning this match does not mean that one team is better than the other. It's just a single game. Frankly, even winning the Coppa Italia is nowhere near as impressive as winning the Scudetto. If you finish in the top 8 in the table in the previous season, you only need to win 4 consecutive matches to win the Coppa Italia, whereas it takes 38 matches to win the Scudetto. That said, I do think both sides are going to play this game to win it, if not only because their presidents have had a little battle going on in the media. When Napoli were not permitted to travel to Torino, Andrea Agnelli said Juventus always follow the rules. Then when Napoli won their appeal, Aurelio De Laurentiis responded by saying that Napoli always follow the rules. And then when Juve contracted COVID, Agnelli posted a picture of the team buses suggesting that Juventus always show up. So I'm sure they're both licking their lips for the opportunity to rub it in their counterpart's face. So that will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the game. That will also do it for this episode. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll talk to you again later in the week to review this match and to preview our next one against Hellas Verona. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!
Sports Social Podcast Network.